um, on my Patreon page, uh, for people who are signed up for like a dollar uh, or more, I do weekly reflections. And so what I'm starting to do is uh, give some of those reflections in live video form. So you can watch this live and ask questions or you can watch it later. And then what I'll do is I'll take some of them and I'll release them maybe a month later uh, on my, uh, my talks archive on um, iTunes. So what did I want to talk about for this week's reflection? Um, I wanted to chat about something that I was reading in uh, a book uh, by uh, Alanka Sipancic, um called What is Sex? And uh, it's a very good book, it's a very difficult book. Um, but there are, um, uh, it's deeply insightful. And I wanted to explore uh, the way in which we can get certain pleasure from our suffering, uh, from our self-sabotage. Uh, look a little bit about why that might be and how we can overcome self-sabotage. Uh, and weirdly, one of the ways we can do it is reasonably simply, you know, what, what, often happens is if we're self-sabotaging, if we're engaged in behavior that is problematic, uh, what we can do is we can think, well, if only I can change the way I'm thinking about things, if I can teach myself new patterns of behavior, if I can do some sort of cognitive therapy uh, that will help me um, you know, not always forget where my keys are or not always make me uh, pull back whenever a relationship is going well then you know that will work. And some forms of cognitive therapy can definitely be helpful. But from a psychoanalytic perspective, uh, what's more important than simply trying to overcome your self-sabotage in life as an individual or as a community, um, doesn't involve teaching yourself new techniques, um, trying to reprogram your neural networks, um, or you know attempting to desensitize you to something like for example fear of spiders so you watch spiders on tv then you look at them behind a cage etc etc but is actually to see if you're getting some sort of enjoyment from the self-sabotage uh confront that enjoyment uh directly and that direct confrontation with your own disavowed enjoyment can be enough to uh, loosen the self-sabotage. So we're gonna kind of unpack that briefly, um, and then I'm gonna try and connect it with um, uh, an example from maybe a uh, church experience. So Sipancic, uh, or Sipancic, sorry, um, she tells this story uh, in the book, and it's an old story, a silly story, um, about this guy, grumpy guy, who comes home from work, flops down on the sofa, uh, turns on the TV and shouts to his wife, get me a beer before it starts, right? And his wife's in the kitchen and he shouts it again, here, listen, get me a beer before it starts. And she sighs, you know, but she goes to the fridge, thinks, no, he's been at work all day, okay. So she gets a beer, gives it to him. He drinks it and then he says to her, get me another beer before it starts. And she's like getting more and more frustrated, but she goes, gets another beer. This happens a third time. Listen, it's about to start. Get me a beer before it starts. She does it a third time. And then the fourth time. Listen, it's about to start. Get me a beer. Get me a beer. And she 
explodes at him. You know, you come in here, you start shouting at me to get you beer, you're, you're lazy, you know, you're just sitting there in front of the TV. And he says, ah, it started, right? So the whole point of the little silly story is that you think that, you know, he's sitting down in front of the TV waiting for some sort of program to start. But actually at the end of the story, you realize, oh no, he's waiting for the argument to start. Now, the second part of the story uh, is the, that uh, he's not looking forward to a programme. He's actually looking forward to the argument. You know, the guy's sitting down going, listen, it's about to start, get me a beer before it starts. And then the third element is that he isn't passive in the argument. He actually sparks it off. He's the author of the argument. So those are kind of three elements of the story that you're confronted with at the end. You know, immediately you're confronted, oh, he's not waiting for a TV program, he's waiting for the argument. Oh, he's not looking forward to something on TV, he's looking forward to the argument. And third, he's not some sort of passive observer, he is actively the author of the argument as it unfolds. Um, now, this is a kind of a psychoanalytic story because this kind of like is a great example of how we are in, in life. Um, if you think of a troll, on social media as an example. Uh, you know, a troll is somebody who might uh, be very annoyed at um, a certain person, right? I've had trolls, you know, obviously, and someone's maybe very annoyed at what I do. They hate it, they despise it, they get worked up about it, and they confront me. Maybe they'll, you know, write some tweets. Um, and it's a funny thing because like, you know, the days before social media, it's kind of like uh, going around to some stranger's house, knocking on the door, and when the stranger opens the door, then shouting at them about how much you dislike them, right? It's kind of like, okay, but this happens. So this stranger, they, they're writing something, and you know, what they, well, what they want is in a sense to provoke a reaction. So then the person who's being trolled reacts Maybe they get angry and frustrated. And then the troll, of course, can, can you know, go look, look at what you're like. You know, you're argumentative, you're disingenuous, you're getting angry, right? So the troll, their kind of personal psychic experience, their subjective experience is the other person is the asshole, right? They're the annoying one. And, you know, I'm pointing out why they're bad, which maybe they are, you know, maybe a troll has something valuable to say about what I'm doing, right? They're, they're saying something about that, but in a way that tries to evoke a response. And then when they get that response, it just encourages the trolling, right? So everybody knows, like, if you feed the troll, there's that idea, don't feed the trolls, which means don't, uh, they're getting libidinal investment, don't feed the libidinal investment, through your participation. Um, and in a way, when it's so obvious with a troll is that although they're angry and they're frustrated and they're annoyed, you can actually tell that they're getting enjoyment out of the activity, right? Otherwise, why would they be doing it? You know, they're putting labor into the activity. Maybe they're setting up a fake account. They're writing to you. They're considering what to say. So although their subjective experience is one of suffering, they are angry and annoyed, uh, they are unconsciously getting some sort of enjoyment out of their um, aggressive posturing. And what's fascinating is, I, so I had this once a few years ago, there were some people who were 
you know, smart individuals, but who were, you know, you know, kept kind of going after me. And uh, at one point, I pointed out to them that they must be enjoying this. You know, it's like, you know, I feel very honored that you would spend so much labor, so much time, uh, you know, engaging with me. Um, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a big thing, you know, that you would enjoy my company so much that you would engage in this behavior. And what was interesting was as soon as I pointed it out, it stopped, right? As soon as, as, soon as I was able to articulate that in a way that um, could be heard, it took the enjoyment out of the trolling, right? And all I did was expose the pleasure that was being disavowed in the activity. Um, so take an example of, you know, something bad has happened in your life, a terrible breakup, something, uh, you know, you didn't get some, a job that you really needed or whatever it is. That's a contingent thing. You didn't make that happen, right? That just happened in life and that was a traumatic maybe experience. But then what can often occur is that you start to repeat this behavior. This behavior becomes part of the texture of your life. So you find that maybe you repeat the breakup in future relationships. You start self-sabotaging yourself in work environments. So what was a contingent external thing that happened to you? has now been invested into your subjectivity, into your being, and it's something that now you act out. So people often do things like think that there's, um, you know, like a criminal in the house at night, or they, um, you know, think that they're gonna have an accident uh, every time they go out in the car, whatever it is. This, um, some element, uh, that, which is of course annoying. I mean, these things are annoying. It means you can't drive. It means you can't fall asleep at night. You don't feel secure. So these are painful experiences. But the question is, are you getting something out of it? Is there some sort of disavowed pleasure in this painful activity that you're doing? What, what pleasure um, attaches to it? Because somehow this has become part of your libidinal structure. Um, and. The trick is, if you can isolate what you're getting out of the self-sabotage, sometimes that can be enough to take the, take the pleasure out of it and therefore uh, you're just confronted with the pain of it and therefore you stop it, right? Um, uh, like an example with, with a community might be that, say a church thinks that the problem is with society uh, is Republicanism or the Democrats or whatever it is, Hillary Clinton or, or, or uh, Donald Trump, right? And they could be right that those people are problematic, right? But it's not just a critique. You start to get this sense that there is a profound enjoyment in the critique. So there's suffering. On the surface, everybody's angry and annoyed, frustrated, and yet they're always circling around the same conversations. In fact, it, it, it even seeps into their purchases, what they buy, how they dress, um, how they um, think of themselves operating in the world. Things that were contingent become, uh, you know, important gestures, you know, suddenly, um, you know, I know somebody who that suddenly the color of their lipstick became uh, a sign of resistance to you know, some, a political movement they didn't like. So suddenly, like, there's all this pleasure starts to be gotten out of um, 
the suffering. You know, you think you're suffering. You think, oh, if only I could get rid of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, then, then I would be happy. But there's some profound enjoyment being taken out of the enemy. Now, one of the problems with this is that you actually come to need your enemy. I've talked about this before, but that if you're getting a libidinal enjoyment out of an enemy, then in a sense, you don't want to get rid of them. You, and you'll continue to repeat the behavior. So like think of a child in, in, a, in a school who always needs somebody to uh, scapegoat. They always need somebody to slag off. It's not like, that, you know, sometimes the person they're slagging off is, deserves it and sometimes they don't. It's just they need someone to do that with. Uh, it's not that a particular person uh, deserves it. It's that there is a placeholder and there, anybody can fit the placeholder, but you need the placeholder. You need the seat upon which any contingent individual can sit, right? So they're getting pleasure from what they perceive as something bad, like that person's an idiot, that person's destructive, that person is this, that person is that, but they get so much pleasure from it that were they to get rid of that person, that person, for example, leaves the school, they would have to find someone else to fill the space. Um, and this is, um, I've used the example of being a hypochondriac, you know, where a hypochondriac is someone who wants the disease that they hate. They think that they've got cancer and they think that that's a terrible thing. But weirdly, they want the cancer. Like they desire it, they're always thinking about it because the cancer holds them together. They have an anxiety. They can blame a disease that they may not have for it. They're always going to the doctor going like, are you sure I don't have cancer? I really think I do, right? But as long as they have that, that binds the anxiety and then they can fantasize that if they got rid of the cancer, then they would have no anxiety. So the cancer then, the fantasized cancer is something that has a psychological uh, place. It, is, it, it, it has a function, it has a use value. Now contrast that with someone who has cancer but isn't a hypochondriac. They can, they aren't the beatingly invested in having the cancer. The cancer doesn't give them a binding of their anxiety. And so they can fight to get rid of it. One is they're not worried about it if they don't have it. And two is when they discover they do have it, they can go, right, I want to get rid of this without having this residual um, unconscious pleasure of, you know, that they're getting out of the fantasy. So all of this to say is, say you have a community that hates atheists, for example, right? Um, and they think that's the problem, this godless society that, that you just got to get rid of or hate Republicans, you know, these, you know, kind of painting them in a certain all one dimensional kind of way. Um, and if only we could get rid of them, everything would be great. If there is a real libidinal investment in that hatred, you know, where they're getting something out of it, the first trick is as a leader is to try to expose what the pleasure is. What is having that scapegoat giving the community? What are the inherent internal anxieties and contradictions that exist within the community that the community cannot face and therefore have to put it onto somebody else? Once you expose people to that, then uh, and, and that the other is not really the problem. Like they may be contingently a problem, like there may be a problem 
um, with, the, with a political party that needs to be dealt with. But once you disinvest your libidinal investment in needing the enemy, then you can actually sit around and go, okay, what can we actively do to you know, make a change? But the first thing you have to do is break the enjoyment you're getting from having the enemy, which binds you to them. And just exposing what, that, what pleasure you're getting can be enough to actually take the pleasure out of it. Um, and then you can kind of make, like make progress. So um, if you self-sabotage and always like, don't really get write the novel that you want to write, right? Um, I knew somebody who wanted to write a book and it was a short book. It was a, um, it was a children's book. And they, uh, he was very keen to write it and he was always putting it off because there was other things that were getting in the way of his life. But he'd wanted to write it for like five years or more and had never done it. When really he had the story in his head he wouldn't have needed to potentially take more than 20 hours out of his life to write the entire thing. But somehow all these things were getting in the way. So the question for me with him was, what pleasure are you getting out of the self-sabotage? What are you getting out of not doing this? You know, are you, um, like, you know, what could it be? Uh, it could be like, you, he, he thinks it's no good. And if he ever does it, he'll have to be confronted with the fact that maybe, you know, he's not a good writer. And so he's getting the pleasure of fantasizing that he is a good writer by never actually writing. To actually write the book would be confronted with the risk of not being a good writer. So not writing is, in a sense, a protection against risk. It's a protection against the risk of a failure of something that might be important to him. Um, now, once you're confronted with that, and if that was true, you go, oh my goodness, that is the thing. I'm, I'm actually frightened that I'll be a bad writer. <laughs> and so while by not writing and always thinking, oh damn, if only my life was less chaotic, I'd be able to do this. If only I didn't have kids. If only I was married to a different person. If only, whatever, right? If only, if only, if only. You know? And so you're experiencing this suffering, but actually what you're getting out of it is the pleasure of the fantasy that you're a great writer um, that just can't actually do the writing because of contingent factors in your life. Now, the truth is the person might not be a good writer, but um, the difficulty is it's a risk. It's always a risk. Um, and by the way, if you're not a good writer, then maybe you're good at something else or you find out you are. You'll never be as good as you, the fantasy. Um, but as soon as you're confronted, and he's, he was confronted with that, it then allowed him to write because he was confronted by the pleasure he was getting, not di but disavowing. He was able then to not, he wasn't able to get the same enjoyment out of not writing, right? He would now it was just pure suffering and he was able to address it and go, okay, am I willing to take the risk? Bring it into consciousness and start to write. And that person was called, uh, I was trying to think of the person who wrote uh, the, um, uh, Harry Potter series but she's a woman so um, that wasn't her uh, but yeah there you go that is the structure and it works politically and it works I think religiously and it works in our individual lives and in our family lives that part of part of what we if we're a leader in a community for example is partly working out where is the self-sabotage what is the enjoyment that's being got out of the self-sabotage? What is it protecting against? What is it allowing to function? 
address that so that you can minimize the self-sabotage. This is deeply connected with my main problem with utopianism, right? Utopianism is the idea, of course, of thinking of a fantastic future somewhere ahead that we can create, some future that it will be, if not perfect, at least perfect in comparison to what we have now, right? And one of the critiques I've sometimes got is, well, theology gets rid of utopian thinking, right? So like, if you suddenly go, well, nothing's going to be absolutely wonderful and you, know, you have to you know, embrace the difficulties of life, then what's going to motivate you to get out of bed? What's going to motivate you to change the world? Like, utopic thinking can motivate you to actually make changes. But the psychoanalytic argument is that no, often utopianism is the very thing that stops you from doing something, right? We think that, oh, if I've got a utopic vision of the future, then I can at least start working towards it. But in what I'm talking about here, it's the idea that, um, that as long as you have a utopic vision of maybe you as a brilliant writer or you in a perfect relationship or you creating a politically you know, perfect society, that, that every time you try to do it, it'll always fall short. And so by always perpetually failing to do it, by not quite getting there, you're able to keep the fantasy alive. So you're able to get the pleasure of a utopia, the pleasure in your mind of a fantasy of how perfect and wonderful life would be if you won the lottery or whatever. But what you kind of end up doing is you're attaching more to the fantasy that actually if you start to really work hard, it would destroy the fantasy and you would be faced with the risk of life and, and the inherent difficulties of life. But that weirdly, by freeing yourself up from this fantasy of some perfection, it will allow you to actually do something, right? It takes the fear away. And this, this is what I meant about this guy who was writing this children's book. Um, it was the very utopic vision that he would be an amazing, great writer. It was the fantasy that he wanted to keep. It was the pleasure he was getting out of the suffering of not writing. By not writing, he was able to fantasize this, this great book. But that once he got rid of the utopia and went like, you know, I might not be a good writer. And even if I am a good writer, it's not going to be like amazing. You know, it's not going to change my life. Even if it is incredible, I still have to deal with everyday life, right? He breaks down the utopia and then he's able to go, but I still want to do this. You know, I, now I, I, I don't get, I'm not getting any pleasure out of this utopic vision anymore. I'm just getting suffering on not writing. I just want, I do want to write and I do want to risk. The, the idea that I might not be any good um, to see if possibly I might be good or I could become good over time. All right, I just want to see if anybody's been watching this live and if anyone has any questions, um, which you can write in the Patreon uh, box. Oh, we do have one. Um, okay, this question is interesting topic. I have OCPD. Um, so I've had, um, I've been doing many uh, cognitive behavioral therapies since I was in my teens. Um, a lot of what I've done is to accept my compulsive behavior and use it to my advantage. By the way, that's very good. Often what we need to do is turn our compulsive behaviors into something that works. Like I, you think of like a detective, um, I love detective shows. Columbo is my favorite. And, you know, this is an obsessive compulsive figure. Often a monk is a good example, but he has turned his uh, obsessive compulsive behavior into something 
He sublimated it into something good. Anyway, that's an aside. Let me keep reading. Um, rather than let it be a disability. Yeah. As an example, I need to acquire thongs when I am upset about whatever. Uh, I need to acquire thongs when I'm upset about whatever. So I buy pencils and give them things. Ah, thongs, I think is things. I was wondering, I was reading this going, you have to buy thongs? Um, okay, things, uh, when I'm uh, upset about whatever. So I buy pencils and give them to people at work, or I buy gifts for my friends and family. I find that giving things away makes me happy too. I don't know why I need to acquire things and I don't care. I'm also a post-production producer, oh, very cool. So my compulsive need for scheduling routines makes me better at my job. This is a fantastic example of, I think, what's, well, what's called sublimation, of, of turning these things into actually something that is not just good, but can make you excel in life. Um, on hypochondriacs, sometimes people know they are unwell, and it is not an easy diag easily diagnosed issue. Exactly. Oh yeah, very true. I have some very close friends who have exactly that, who have had things wrong with them that just medicine is not caught up. Medicine is still a relatively young, you know, science. And um, yes, they knew their bodies better than the doctor. Sorry, I keep interrupting because I like everything you're saying. Um, the sense of relief people feel when the doctor finds the cancer is not because they want the cancer, it is because they knew it was there and they want to treat it. That's exactly true. Although I don't think this is the case with cancer necessarily because the weird thing about cancer is often it is completely invisible you don't feel it i mean that's the difficult thing like often by the time someone is diagnosed with cancer they've had it for four or five years and there's been no symptoms whatsoever uh, but then sometimes there is but there's other diseases so i'm completely taking your point there are things that are wrong um, and you can feel it and there's just they cannot find anything uh, because they haven't been doing the right tests or we don't have the ability yet um, and just getting a diagnosis is a relief. Yeah. Um, I think most people are hypochondriacs. Uh, they know that something is wrong in their heart and they want to treat it, but they need it to be confirmed externally through religion or philosophy or whatever. Yeah, the only thing I would do is I wanted to find hypochondria, not as you know, knowing something's wrong but people not believing you, but rather having there to be something wrong. You know, this is my housemate coming in, Elliot. So, hello, Elliot. You're just doing a, a, a Patreon video. There he is. Hello. Look at that lovely face. Is it streaming right and, now? Yeah, streaming live. And two oh, coffee cups. Two yeah. coffee cups. I found it in my car. Oh, right. Goofy right, and yeah. regular. All right, I'll work you to your thumb. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, yeah, we're going to do a podcast after this. Um, oh, yeah, so the hypochondriac isn't, I don't think, is someone who thinks there's something wrong because they feel it in their body and then they discover that there is something wrong. I would just, I would say that's kind of normal, like you're saying, and that's um, somebody being intelligent, listening to their body. Whereas a hypochondriac is someone who, even if they're completely healthy, they need to fantasize that there is something wrong. And that's the difference. The hypochondriac is someone who requires the disease um, and always has to fantasize it, not someone who, you know, feels something's wrong but hasn't been discovered yet. But yeah, but everything you've said, I very much like. Uh, oh, Brian's popped in. Can you give some reading suggestions? I continue to be fascinated by your thank, my insights, thank you, from psychotherapy. Uh, you often mention Lacan, where's a good place to start? Lacan is a, is a very difficult thinker, as you, you may, uh, I've probably said before. So 
honestly the best place to start with them even if you are an academic right which brian you might be um like unless you've you're academically trained in psychoanalysis he's a bit of a nightmare <laughs> um but i there's some of the canians that i really like bruce fink i think is really brilliant and um, he's written a number of books uh on lacan which are which are technical but readable um uh, he's got an introduction to the Keynesian psychoanalysis. He's got an introduction to Freudian psychoanalysis. And um, I think he's got a book that's called something like a psych Lacanian psychoanalytic technique. Anything by Bruce Fink, I'd recommend. Also, but uh, a brilliant writer is Adam Phillips. And uh, he, I really recommend him. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe I should put together a, a book list. Um, there's other Lacanians like uh, Alanka Sapancic who is brilliant, but, um, you know, again, if you've got some philosophy background, then go for it, uh, but you need some philosophy background, she's a philosopher. Um, so yeah, I'll, um, I'll maybe um, do one of these live videos about maybe recommended reading uh, at some point, I think that would be fun to do. Uh, all right, well listen, thank you so much for clicking into that. Um, I'm going to continue to do these on a regular basis uh, and um, I uh, hope you get something out of them. Take care, have a great day and oh, if you're watching this live then I'm going to be uh, in probably the next couple of hours doing a video feed of the fundamentalists for you if you're on my Patreon. So uh, click into that.